welcome to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. You'll enjoy conversations with amazing changemakers, solutionaries, and social innovators who have all taken the path from local citizen to global changemaker. They do so by working to change the system that creates the world's most challenging issues. We structure these interviews around the Blue Roads slogan, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world, and ask participants to tell us about their origins, their work to address issues in their communities, how they've engaged with others different from themselves, and how they've used these experiences to make the leap to changemakers addressing the UN Sustainable Development Goals. As their host, I try hard to take myself out of the conversation as much as possible, that is, after introducing participants, so you won't notice the typical back and forth of the interview process. I hope this will be helpful to you to hear the stories as a complete narrative that addresses all four quadrants of the Blue Roads Changemaker journey, homegrown solutions for a patchwork world. In today's episode, we hear part one of Changemaker Rivera Sun's story as a homegrown author and expert in nonviolent action. You will learn about her early life and influences and how efforts to seek alternatives to violence in her novels for young people led her into the world of successful nonviolent activism throughout history. excited today to have my uh, friend Rivera Sun with me and I'm going to let her do the introduction of herself because she's awesome and involved in so many exciting things including writing and uh, nonviolent activism but I really want you to hear her introduction from herself so I'm going to say first welcome Rivera glad you're here Thanks, Patty. Thanks for including me in this series of on change makers. It's an honor and a delight. I'm so glad you're here. It certainly is an honor for me to get the opportunity to chat with you. So I'm going to ask you to start by just uh, telling us about your homegrown journey. Where were you grown and who are your people and how are those things important to who you are today? Thank you. So uh, today I am a nonviolence trainer and a writer of novels that feature nonviolent movements for change in the plots themselves. And then I also edit a weekly newsletter called Nonviolence News that collects 30 to 50 stories of nonviolence each week, which is pretty amazing. And so people often ask me, how did you get into doing all this? How did you get into activism? And for myself, I used to say I started in the Occupy movement. But as I started to learn more, I realized that there are really two different kinds of activism. There's the kind of activism that says no to problems and says stop the damage and the destruction. And then there's the kind of activism or nonviolence that says yes to solutions, that says we're going to build something that's needed in the world. We're going to teach ourselves how to do life differently. And when I look back at my history, that's actually where I began. I grew up on a organic farm in northern Maine. I have uh, four siblings, uh, two sets of twins and a sister in between. I'm the oldest. And my parents um, were 
kind of crazy and kind of visionary. They moved us to this farm at the very northern tip of, of Maine. When I was 13 years old, I thought that was incredibly dorky of them uh, to do that to us. And I literally grew up pulling weeds and picking potatoes in northern Maine. And uh, But my farm was part of a cooperative of 10 small farms that started a distribution company where we would drive a truck around the state of Maine. We would pick up uh, product and produce from all these farms and we would deliver it to Maine restaurants and grocery stores and buying clubs. And that company, Crown of Maine Organic Cooperative, is still in uh, operation today. Uh, my twin sister actually is one of the founding partners and continues to help run it. My younger sister worked there for quite some time too. And they serve over 300 different businesses throughout the state and they've really empowered and enabled uh, the local food movement to get to connect farmers and people who like to eat local food. So to me, that's that's a really core piece of where I began. I began doing what we might call a constructive program, an alternative institution. And by uh, seeing my parents organize with other farmers to create a market for their produce where there wasn't one before. Um, we were too small to compete in the major market. We needed to, to sell to a larger market than just our farm stand. Otherwise, they wouldn't be able to support all five of us kids. So that's, that's how I started doing nonviolence. And I didn't even know it then. But I would say that in 2012, I sat down to write my first novel. And I wanted to write about a nonviolent movement for change in a fictional United States. And I got about halfway through writing and I realized I didn't know how to get my characters out of the problems that they faced. So I actually Googled how to bring down dictators nonviolently. What I found was that not only is this possible, people have been doing it all over the world. They have literally been bringing down one dictatorship after another. And not just that, they've been stopping wars. They've been winning labor uh, equality. They've been winning women's rights. They've been working on stopping pollution and stopping destruction of uh, environments like forests and mountains and oceans. Uh, and that they've been surprisingly successful at doing this. That piece really uh, was unexpected for me. Because like many of us, I had heard that, oh, there's this nonviolence thing that Gandhi and King used, but it's not, I mean, nobody really wins with that stuff, right? Well, what I found out was that they actually do win over and over and over again. And in certain types of struggles, they're actually twice as successful as violence. Uh, struggles like changing governments, changing dictatorships, stopping foreign invasions and ending occupations. Imagine that. Those are the kinds of things we think we need an army for. But actually, historically speaking, when we look at all the case studies over the last hundred years, nonviolent action has been twice as successful. So when I read about that, I thought that was pretty amazing. And I realized that I was pretty ignorant. I didn't know what this stuff was or how it was working. But since it seemed like it was working a lot, I thought I'd find out. So I actually started getting stacks of books and working my way through the books and revising my own novel at the same time. So every time I learned something new about strategy for nonviolent struggles, I would change what the characters were doing in the book. After the Dandelion Insurrection, which is the name of the book, came out, my it was surprisingly popular. Um, that was a wonderful thing to discover. 
Uh, but readers started to write to me asking me, how do we make this real? How do we do struggles like this in our own communities? And so I started to go on book tours where I would talk a little bit about the book, but mostly I would do trainings in how to use nonviolent action to make the changes that we need. And that has really shaped the course of the last um, seven or eight years for me. I've done a lot of trainings all over the United States on almost every issue you can imagine. Um, and most recently, it's uh, led me to organize this nonviolence news service, which uh, has really opened my eyes. I thought I knew a lot about nonviolent struggle, but I discovered that there's so much more happening than any of us realize. And it was only by trying to collect all the stories each week that I discovered how remarkable uh, people are when they organize to make sure that workers are getting paid enough, to make sure that we're not putting contaminants in streams, to make sure that our communities are resilient and strong for this very this time of great upheaval economically, environmentally, socially. There's a lot of changes going on. We're being asked to change in ways that a lot of us uh, never were before. Um, we're being asked to learn more about other people from other places, people who don't look like us, who don't necessarily uh, come from the same backgrounds as us. And many communities, including the one that I grew up in as a small child, have really struggled uh, with, with how do we make room in our hearts and our minds and still maintain our own sense of identity. We don't want to become homogenified. I don't want to become just like everybody else. So uh, these are the things that fascinate me from stories around the world, because it's not just in the U.S. It's actually a global thing that more and more people are, are learning to make change with nonviolent struggle. And uh, that's, that's where I came from, how I got into doing this. When I'm looking for those 30 to 50 stories each week, I follow uh, a few news journals that tend to report on nonviolent campaigns. But I also do searches uh, in, in my browser for word, keywords like protests, demonstrations, strikes, boycotts. And then I scan a ton of headlines. I probably scan over a thousand headlines each week. I read 40 different journals, but I also draw on my background of knowing the 300 methods of nonviolent struggle to spot things that people aren't calling nonviolent action, but actually are. Um, so stories about people who are building tiny house villages uh, because there's an unhoused population and not enough affordable housing. That's nonviolent action, but we wouldn't necessarily think of that. And then I do check my own biases. So in the U.S., we it's really easy to find news about U.S. stories. It's harder to see what's going on in other parts of the world. So I have to go and look for news that is coming from other places, particularly spots that we have a little bit of blinders to. The Global South is a good example. Africa as a continent of many, many countries is actually the leading edge of peace efforts and nonviolent struggles. And most people don't know this at all. We don't, it doesn't come to mind in our biased impressions of what's going on in Africa. But uh, I think in 2019, there were something like 13 uh, different major campaigns going on uh, to end dictatorships, to stop wars, to assert uh, human rights and economic justice struggles. 
And so it's, it's pretty amazing when you start looking what you could find. So I usually work in two different settings. One might be a, a community that wants to train everyone in their community in nonviolent struggle. They know they're facing a lot of different kinds of issues and they want everyone to get the knowledge. Uh, so this might be, it might be a, a church that's brought me in. It might be a, a university sometimes will bring me in or a peace and justice center. Uh, but then the other uh, situation I often do trainings in is around people who are working on a specific issue and they have tried all the conventional routes. They've filed petitions, they've done lawsuits and they're kind of getting to the end of their options and they think they might need to do some direct action. So they will bring me in to help their group strategize what will that direct action look like? Uh, what do we need to know to do this successfully? Um, and um, how can we prepare for these this struggle? Re I've literally worked all over the country with so many different kinds of groups, and they're all fascinating. I mean, people have so much more knowledge and power than we often think. Uh, and my job is just to give that one piece of the puzzle that might help them unlock a whole toolbox of nonviolent action. And it's one thing that comes up a lot in the uh, workshops is people aren't as familiar with how the power of nonviolent struggle works. We know a lot about how we petition for change, how we call uh, traditional power holders for change. We aren't as familiar with how we withdraw our cooperation and consent, how we go on strike, how we uh, walk out of class, how we uh, shut down the factory that we're working at, or how we uh, engage in acts of um, obstruction, how we blockade a road, or we stop a, a railroad tra uh, tracks, we do a blockade there. Uh, for example, there's a wonderful story from Kentucky about coal miners who the company declared bankruptcy but had refused to pay uh, unemployment and back wages to the miners. So the miners blockaded the railroad uh, tracks where the last shipments of coal were trying to get delivered so the company could break in those profits. And a very diverse coalition of people came out to support the miners getting their justice in that situation. And they were successful in their campaign. Here where I live in New Mexico, um, I was asked to be a, a consulting advisor to a group that was organizing around a very tragic incident, or it could have been a lot more tragic, but a very sad incident in our community where a mother was driving a minivan through our state. She wasn't from the state, she was just passing through, and uh, she got pulled over. So in our state, when you get a speeding ticket, you have to either pay it right away or you have to go down to the, the, the county building and file an extension or go before the judge and get it repealed. Um, and for this poor mom who was traveling through the state, she was moving. Uh, that was really an onerous burden. And she got into an argument with a cop, and the cop started acting really aggressively, and she didn't feel safe. So she got back in her car, and she drove away. Um, the cop pursued and called in other cops, and it ended up in a situation in which she got pulled over again. The cop got angry. He smashed in the window of her car. He chased her 14-year-old son around the car. And as the second set of cops arrived, they fired a gun at the back of her car trying to blow out her tires, 
which is like something you see at TV, but cops aren't really supposed to do. The problem that our community had was that there was some racial injustice that was happening in this. And there were some things culturally that our local cops who are of mixed race, they tend to be Hispanic and native and white, uh, didn't know about how African-American um, parents train their children that if you're in a lonely place where nobody's around and you're being threatened by a cop, you can go, you need to go to a safe place uh, where there are witnesses, where there are people, um, because they've had a history of dangerous and deadly encounters. So my role was to advise the group that was pushing to get a meeting between the NAACP and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference coordinators in our state and the state police who were involved, the local police and the local authorities. And so my job was to advise them on how to do a march and a demonstration that would stay nonviolent, that would deliver the messages how to have a liaison that could help act as an ally in that situation to bring the parties to the table and then to be at the meeting to make sure that the meeting actually progressed to a point where something could shift or change. Um, and there's a lot more to this story, but that's a good example of a very small local campaign that was uh, relatively successful in getting some of its goals met as a larger part of the justice system that was very problematic as well. So um, that's a small campaign. I've advised with fra anti-fracking campaigns, people who are concerned about the, the contamination issues and the threats to their watersheds. Um, I've worked with peace groups who are doing trying to work on abolishing nuclear weapons or uh, abolishing the draft and draft registration. And I will hear what's going on and I will try to find ways that they can organize strategic nonviolent actions or if they're planning a nonviolent action, I can help advise, um, here's how you improve the action you're planning to do for maximum impact, or here's how you pair it with this other kind of action. So maintaining nonviolent dis discipline can be really challenging for groups. Uh, and there are some some rules of thumbs uh, that people can start to work with. First of all, be um, outspokenly committed to nonviolence. It's a really great way to set the stage and the tone and then to set a standard by which you can hold your movement accountable. A second is to look at different types of actions are uh, what we call concentrated and dispersed. Concentrated actions concentrate bodies in a geographic space, like a demonstration or a march or a rally. Those are the ones that have trouble maintaining nonviolent discipline because the other kinds are dispersed actions and usually you're not getting, uh, you're not confronting people like the police or uh, people who disagree with you. But then the, for when you do need to use concentrated actions, it's good to train and prepare for them to teach your movement de-escalation skills for yourself and for other people in the space to appoint and train peace teams can be really helpful. These are people who wear vests, who are deciding to be neutral on the issue on that day, but will do the job of de-escalating parties as tensions rise. And then to have a nonviolence commitment and review it before you go into action is really helpful. So there's, a, there's more, but those are some, some brief ones. Uh, creativity can really help. Here's one true story about this from my experience. Uh, during the 2000 and uh, I think it was the 16, 2015 or 16 bombing of Gaza by Israel. Yet again, another very controversial issue in our country. 
um, some peace activists and I decided to hold a demonstration at our uh, local farmer's market saying that no matter where you stand on this issue, you should call for the ending of this this war and violence. Like, uh, this is not the way they're going to solve their problems. And we remade um, Picasso's Guernica into images that came from Gaza during this bombing campaign. And it was an enormous banner. It took six people to hold it up. And I had someone who came to the demonstration who didn't want to be committed to nonviolence which is very problematic. This is the only demonstration locally that I've actually had the cops actively called on us. So I handed her the drum and I said, we're going to do this thing where we raise our hands to show that we have blood on our hands if we do nothing. And then we're going to lower them really slowly, but we need someone to keep time. So her job was to bang the drum in a metered sense. And because she was doing that, she couldn't throw punches at anyone. She couldn't get into fights with anyone. And then I asked all the participants to do a silent protest because one of the, the challenges we faced was a lot of heckling from pro-Israel supporters. So the silence and the drumming uh, helped people maintain their, their focus, their calm. It gave them something to do when they were getting um, tension uh, from the hecklers or for people who really did want to pick a fight with the activists. So those are, those are some examples of how you can use creative solutions to help to maintain uh, nonviolence. Be watching and listening for part two of Rivera's son's story, where she will share her own experiences with the diverse patchwork and her prediction that nonviolent action will change the world in the years ahead. Thank you for tuning in to the Blue Roads Changemaker podcast. We hope you will follow our work and learn more about how you can get involved and start your own changemaker journey. Contact us at www.blueroadseducation.org.